It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And you know how I keep saying, oh, this is a really good chapter? The decanter is not a really good chapter. Uh, okay. <laughs> I That's not a great way to begin the podcast. But it's, it's, we'll get through it. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you said to me that you were going to say that on this episode. I didn't realize it was going to be literally the first thing that was said on this episode. I feel like you're not selling people on this. The rest of the chapters are great. Okay. That wasn't the first thing you said. <laughs> No, I said very specifically this oh chapter. My God. I didn't say the other chapters because we're co- this time we're covering chapters one hundred one through one hundred five, uh, which is first the decanter, then a bunch of chapters about the size, bones, fossils, and uh, future of whales. Sometimes I feel like you don't worry at all about whether people will continue listening to our podcast. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, uh, chapters 101 through 105, um, and I mean, like, I think the, the primary reason to be mean to the decanter is just because it's sort of an odd one out, like, it's just, it's just Ishmael talking about a particular statistical fact that he noticed. Yeah, it's... And and then the other four chapters, uh, this week are all about, like, whale skeletons and like are thematic and, and connected and it's stuff. also that it's just him being kind of weird about the dutch again yes like no, it, that's that's true it's not so much that there's anything like hideous in the decanter it's just i don't see a reason for it except for the bit where he does want to communicate the amount of stores that are shipped out on a whaling ship for a voyage but also he's talking about how these are like unusual so we don't actually get useful information about what kind of like stores the pequod has it just ends up being him being like those dutch sure eat a lot of butter Yes. Okay. Let's talk about, let's summarize the chapter because we did just yes. kind of say the thing that's in like the last paragraph, but, but I mean, that is kind of what the chapter's about. Yes. Um, I do like the, uh, the initial bit, which is that it discusses briefly some of the history of English whaling and how, um, the Enderbys, which the, uh, ship that we just left, the Samuel Enderby is named after Samuel Enderby, uh, were a shipping concern, uh, that outfitted whalers and like sent them out, uh, headed by one Samuel Enderby. Yeah, yeah, and it's, there's a little bit of, like, interesting historical detail here. It kind of connects up to, like, previously, um, the, uh, like, renowned whaling family, the Coffins, has come up. Which we should remember, uh, I believe, Ishmael's, like, a cousin of. Yes. He's got, like, a familial connection to him. And he does mention how Im- how important the Coffins are uh, in this chapter as well. Yeah, and by the way, uh, this is the... The Coffin Whaling family is historical. They, yeah. They've got a Wikipedia page. And wasn't uh, wasn't 
Melville in some way connected to them somewhat distantly? Uh, yeah. Like, I seem to remember that from a previous episode. Yeah, no, I, I also think that I remember that one of the notes in PowerMovieDick.com at some point was like, by the way, Melville was in fact, like, one of the coffins was in fact Melville's, like, uncle by marriage. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would have to skim back through a bunch of other notes to double check. Yeah, yeah, I, let's just go with, we both remember this being the case. It's probably true, and if it's not, I'm sure someone will tell us on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, In any case. I, I'm not sure about that at all. <laughs> I don't think we've ever actually been corrected on uh, minutiae. Yeah, because we're book. always right. <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah, so the Enderbees, um, you know, uh, are kind of the, uh, I guess, like the English coffins in that they're like a known whaling family. Um, and the Enderbees also have like a Wikipedia page, although uh, it's a slightly different um, it seems like the Enderbees had a slightly different relationship to whaling than the Coffins because yeah. the Enderbees, like uh, Samuel Enderby and Sons, was uh, I mean as Ben said like a, a concern a business that um, like owned and like outfitted whaling vessels. Uh, I don't think any of the Enderbees were actual like sea captains. Yeah, um, and in fact. Uh, some of their earliest voyages were captained by coffins. Yes. In fact, I did, I like, I poked around on Wikipedia about this a little bit, and it seems like, basically, the, so, as is explained in this chapter, um, the Samuel Enderby, uh, outfitted the first English ships that hunted the sperm whale. Um, in 1775. Yeah, and that date is actually of interest, because the reason that there was an English sperm whaling expedition at that point had to do with the Revolutionary War. Um, oh! Yeah, there was an embargo on American-produced uh, whale oil. Oh, so that's... And previously to that, in fact, uh, Ishmael notes, ever since 1726, uh, so the sperm whale had been hunted from the Americas. But yeah, that makes sense. That makes very clear political sense. And it's interesting he doesn't mention it at all. Yeah, and in fact... Um, let me just double check this, but I, but I believe it is specified that um, the captains of Enderby's like first whaling expeditions were all American loyalists. Wow, yeah, that that's that's a lot. Yeah, there's uh, also a mention um, elsewhere that like in some of the early like grand uh, like um, whaling scouting efforts. Uh, made by the Enderbees, um, specifically one to the South Sea was the British uh, sloop of war Rattler. Um, so the Enderbees clearly have a close connection to the British crown. Yes, yeah. And in fact, that's sort of alluded to when uh, in the opening of the chapter, Ishmael says that the, um, the famous whaling house of Enderby and Sons, a house which in my poor whaleman's opinion comes not far behind the united royal houses of the Tudors and the Bourbons in point of real historical interest. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So he's, he's explicitly framing them as, like, whaling royalty. Yes. Um, as opposed to the, like, you know, presumably the whaling Washingtons and Jeffersons of the coffins. <laughs> yes, um... Yeah, uh, and, uh, so, you know, um, the Enderbees, uh, funded and funded the first, uh, British, um, you know, sperm whaling expedition. 
Um, and then they also funded the first um, South Sea whaling expedition. Yep, via the uh, English government, as mentioned. Yeah, and 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 this is um, the the reason that they that they were the first to hunt in these waters or hunt whales in these waters, and that it 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 was involved with um, you know the British Crown is because the uh, the East India Company had like control over those waters and like a, a monopoly on like economic activity there mm-hmm. and so it, it it required like the enderbys had to get like special permission to do that yeah yeah um uh they also um in 1819 established jap the uh whaling ground off of japan with the siren mm-hmm. uh which sailed out there um which was commanded by a coffin yep Although this would be sufficiently past the uh, War of Independence that um, probably this does not imply that Coffin was an American loyalist. Yeah, but but it does seem like the um, the sort of general pattern of uh, Enderby and Sons ships uh, being commanded by, like, Nantucket or otherwise yes. American whalers. Like, that seems to have been a general pattern. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely this, and I'm sure this is part of why Ishmael... Um, approves of the Enderbys, there's a general sense that, like, oh, they recognize the real, like, you know, skill and expertise of the Nantucket whaler. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so then, um, you know, uh, Ishmael goes on to talk a little bit more about the Samuel Enderby, the ship we encountered last time, which it's not made clear here. I, I almost assume that it's not a ship owned by Enderby and Sons. Uh, I would have to believe that it was owned by Enderby and Sons. Like, wh- why else? I, I suppose. Um, I, I feel like it... I mean, it... it why, why would it be named that otherwise? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you know what? You're probably right, actually. It probably is. Um, like, maybe it doesn't belong to them anymore, but I'm certain that they, like, uh, built it. I guess the reason that it seemed strange to me is I'm like, but Samuel Enderby is, like, the name of the company. Why would you also name the ship Samuel Enderby? Like, it would be as though an well, East India Company ship... Enderby, who, uh, like, the original Samuel Enderby, died, and this is, like, was made after his death. Yeah, it's like a memorial thing. No, you're probably yeah. right. It probably is... It, it probably is owned by the Enderbys. Like, I, I agree that it's a little weird to name a ship after the founder of your company, and so it's... The Samuel Enderby, owned by the Ender by Enderby and Sons, that's a little weird, but it's a lot weirder to not be part of Enderby and Sons. Be like, you know what I'm going to name my ship Samuel Enderby after the founder of my ri- of this rival whale owning like concern. Yeah, no, yeah, you know what, you're right. Anyways, uh, Ishmael actually uh, later boards the Enderby again, long after the events of the book. He says uh, off Patagonia and got extremely drunk. Yes, he talks a lot about the, the, the like, very, uh, I guess... A like, jolly gam. Yeah, it sounds like they had just, like, a great time on the Samuel Enderby. Specifically, such a good time that they, like, they had their party, there was a storm in the middle of it, and then when they got done with the storm, they were like, alright, back to drinking. Well, yeah, because they'd sobered up. Specifically, as he puts it, not just because the storm took a while, but because they'd had to, like... Uh, tie themselves to the mast and be, like, 
like scramble up there while drunk to reef the topsails, both the visitors in the gam and the like ships, the hosts themselves. And because they were all drunk and they did such a hash of it, it took them forever. Uh, he explicitly claims that they got their like jackets reefed into the sails. Cause so, okay. So when you reef a sail, I, I just realized this may not be immediately. Known. Yeah. I was actually very confused about what you were talking Sorry. about. So go on. When you reef a sail, basically you constrain it in a way to reduce the square footage it actually presents. So as to reduce the power on the sail from the wind. So if the wind is too high, such that if you just caught in your full sails, it would knock your boat over. It would break the mast, whatever you can reef them. Usually this is done by having like metal grommets in the sail with a line running through it so that you can just like, basically pull it like a venetian blind and it will um and it will shorten but with an old school sail you have to like tie it off right so reefing a sail is an elaborate process that involves going up not not fully like i don't think you call it reefing a sail when you're fully like tying it up when you're reducing the sail's size it's an it's a pretty elaborate thing you roll the sail up from the bottom you tie it off and you need to be very secure because if it falls back open you're back where you started mm -hmm. and it sounds like at least he claims that the drunken sailors who were, like, tied onto the boat, and it doesn't sound like anyone died, I hope, um, were drunk enough and disorganized enough that a number of them got their, like, jackets or arm caught in the, like, folding canvas and ended up stuck up there for the duration of the storm. Ah, okay, yes, that is what he's describing. Because, okay, what he literally says is, um... When the squall came, for it's squally off there by Patagonia, and all hands, visitors and all, were called to reef topsails, we were so top-heavy that we had to swing each other aloft in bowlins, and we ignorantly furled the skirts of our jackets into the sails, so that we hung there, reefed fast in the howling gale, a warning example to all drunken tars. So yeah, that's his sort of comic description of the scene, is that, you know, everyone was fine, but we uh, were so drunk that when we went up to reef the sails, we got stuck there, and were therefore stuck there until the gale died down. Yeah, alright. Now I understand what's going on here and, and and why it was, like, very embarrassing overall. Yeah. However, the mast did not go overboard, and by and by we scrambled down. So sober that we had to pass the flip again. Yeah, um, and apparently what they were drinking was flip, which, by the way, do you know what flip is, Ben? No. It's like a very weird, like, 18th and 19th century cocktail. Oh, I've heard of this, but I don't know what it what composes it so i mean you know it doesn't have there's not like a single recipe oh, yeah, for what all sense. flip is but mm. but generally speaking it's like liquor beer sugar possibly an egg and it's been like frothed up and potentially heated by having like a hot iron thrust into it okay i definitely knew about the concept of thrusting an iron into drinks to make something i didn't remember that it was called flip yeah. Now, uh, it doesn't necessarily... I think that the specific, like, heated up by thrusting an iron into it might be something that was, like, uh, really, um, like... Uh, I Romanticized? Think that, well, no, no. I think that it that's, like, part... I think that that dates to, like, significantly before this book. Mm. So I don't know if, if that was the... If that was the style at the time. Yeah, I, I I don't know what exactly they were doing to froth up this flip. They may have just been, like, shaking it up. And they probably yeah, yeah. didn't have fresh eggs. Also, but... it's very funny to me that Wikipedia uh, has to specify the difference between eggnog and flip. Because to me, eggnog is a thing I just buy in a carton. And, you know, I have no sense of what goes into the construction of it. So the fact that flip and eggnog were even in Considered... the same ballpark was just like, huh, okay. Yeah, I mean... 
Okay, homemade, like, uh, home kind of, like, frothed alcoholic eggnog is really good. I've made that several times before. It's a it's an elaborate fucking process. Um, or at least it has been the way that I made it. You can probably do it a little bit quick and dirtier. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really good. Next time on Higgledy Piggledy Cocktail Facts. Well. <laughs> but no, that, that does sound great. Um. Huh. So yeah, uh, and then he goes on to just describe like what the food was like on the Samuel Enderby. Oh yeah, ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. This this is among you know the many uh, upsetting moments. Yeah, I need to. So uh, Daniel Lavery, a writer that I like a lot, uh, recently published a piece titled something like Let me see. Uh, it, it was like the food of Moby Dick. Yeah, no, but I want to read the actual title of it because it's a good title. Um, uh, but, but yes, um, the decreasingly palatable and increasingly baffling meals of Moby Dick in order. Well, you know, that's... And he's right. The meals in Moby Dick are not very palatable and very baffling. This one's not baffling at all. It's very straightforward. They had, like, it's all just things that keep in the belly of a ship. It's... Uh, uh, Okay, but... All of it's awful. Small but substantial, symmetrically globular, and indestructible dumplings. That is a little baffling. (laughs) The comparison to billiard balls is also quite wild. But no, you know, it's just, it's a way of keeping, it's a way of using flour. And it presumably got boiled. So it's basically like boiled little flour balls that have, that have hardened into these little, uh, globules. I mean, yes. So, like, I'm not saying that I am actually deeply confused by the food in Moby Dick. Like, I actually do understand how most of it is composed, but the ways that it's described. Oh, yeah. Also, the beef, which was fine, tough, but with body in it. They said it was bull beef. Others, that it was dromedary beef. But I do not know for certain how that was. So, the beef is extremely dried and, like, chewy. And yeah. then there's the bread, and the bread, but that couldn't be helped. Besides, it was an anti-scorbutic. In short, the bread contained the only fresh fare they had. So, anti-scorbutic means it, pre- it prevents scurvy. The way you prevent scurvy is with vitamin C, which either comes from fresh meat or fresh, like, fruits and vegetables. But basically, like, anything fresh at all has vitamin C in it. Yeah, yeah. So, do you want to explain why this bread, which, is, which has been laid up for so long, is a preventative for the scurvy? Yeah, it's it's got horrible bugs in it. It's got maggots, yeah. Uh, the um the the pr- fresh protein and vitamin C of the maggots is a uh, technically a anti-scorbutic. Ugh, I hate this. I want to move on quickly. He also specifies that the only way you eat it is by stepping into like the dark corner of the unlit cabin so that you can't see what you're eating. Ugh. But uh. The Samuel Enderby was a jolly ship of good fare and plenty, fine, flip, and strong, crack fellows all in capital from boot heels to hat band. Yeah, so Israel is overall like, yeah, you know what? The Samuel Enderby, good times, good times. Because he was incredibly drunk. Uh, yes. Yeah, I will also note the um, very fun, uh, fun statement that he has about, you know, um, well, where was this? There was a really great uh, line about, oh, right, yes, um, uh, which was uh, short lives and jolly deaths to the crew of the Samuel Enderby as like a benediction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like he's just very much caught up in the energy of a, a whaleman's gam, which is a bunch of people on a voyage that will definitely kill some of them. Um, just living it up. Yeah. Yeah. 
and then he's kind of like, well, you know, why is it that English whalers are, are like, living so high on the hog? Especially uh, given that English sailors are normally, like, mistreated and barely fed. That's, that's the, not even the subtext here. That's the text. Okay, I, I didn't like, really see... I... Yeah, he says this thing about, um, you know, uh, later on in this, he says, like, English merchants are famously stingy. Oh, yeah, you know what, you're right, he does say that. So, like, the I... reason why this needs to be explained is not because, like, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's unusual for an American whaler. It's that it's an English ship, so he has to explain why the sailors aren't all dour, depressed, and carrying, like, the gray skies of England around with them. Yeah, all right, fair enough, fair that's enough. That's why this is such a weird chapter. Yeah. I mean, among other things. I mean, it also sounded to me like he felt like this was a contrast with the Pequod. I don't think people are eating this well on the Pequod. Hmm. I, the explicit contrast he draws is to other English ships, and I've never gotten the sense that the Pequod, which has that sort of, uh, you know, cannibal good cheer that he's uh, so certain of, that, like, intensity, I don't think that people are, like, uh, grumbling about food too much on the Pequod, because Ahab hardly cares. Yeah, I and when suppose. we've seen people eating on the Pequod, they've been—it's been fine. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that he's really emphasizing the like food on the Enderby in a way As that he's terrible, but like in good company. <laughs> but but he's never done that about um, the Pequod. But but it does, you're right that he doesn't draw an explicit contrast between those things. Yeah, and I I think that a major part of this is the bad food in good company is good like element because all of the food he describes here is awful like really awful but there was a ton of alcohol and that made it fine yeah yeah they flipped that flip at a gallon at 10 gallons an hour i believe he said yes um anyway so uh he does say that uh this is the abounding good cheer of these english whalers is matter for historical research nor have I been at all sparing of historical whale research when it has seemed needed. No, you haven't, Ishmael. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. you have not. There, I, I would be hard-pressed to find a truer sentence in this novel. <laughs> oh, I'm not even going to try. That one is, it is, it is pure and honest truth of the finest, finest quality spermaceti directly from the head of the whale. <sighs> anyway, um... So, apparently, the specific historical research that he did is that he found uh, what he describes as an ancient Dutch volume. Which, uh, by the musty, wailing smell of it, I knew must be about whalers. I like the idea of Ishmael's, like, crawling around a library going, I smell whale. Oh, God. Ah, yes, this must be about whalers. And, like, normal people in library. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, so he found some book called... Uh, Dan Koopman, uh, which he assumed was the memoirs of one Dan Koopman, a Cooper. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think, I think he knew enough to guess that um, Dan was like an article. No, he, he, he says said... it must be the invaluable memoirs of some Amsterdam Cooper. And he was reinforced in his opinion by seeing it was the production of one Fitz Swackhammer. Right, but he knew the name of the author. It was Fitz Swackhammer. And, and, and like the in the very next sentence, when he talks about mm -hmm. when someone actually translated the title of the book for it, sure, sure, uh, that person assured me that Dan Koopman did uh, not mean yep, you're right, you're right. the Cooper, but the merchant. Okay, yes, he did not think it was a guy named Dan, which was my initial understanding. Thank you for setting me straight on that, but I'm also kind of sad. But, 
Sorry. Um, but anyway, he finds this book. If anyone needs a pseudonym, by the way, Dan Koopman, good for it. <laughs> um, and and uh, it's, you know, it's just a, it's a book on, uh, you know, the, the details of, of Dutch commerce, basically. Yes. Um, and includes, like, a, a bunch of kind of uh, numerical information on the outfitting of uh, a whale ship. Yep. Specifically the, like, total original on-take of food for a whale ship of 180 Dutch whalers. Yeah, so, so not a, wh- a, a fleet. Oh. Mm. I think when he says 180 sail of Dutch whalemen, he means 180 ships. I guess that that does that does make sense. Although it might it might not be 180 ships. It might be uh, 60 ships. Uh, yeah, I don't know for sure. Sail. Uh, like later on in the chapter, um, Moby uh, PowerMobyDick.com cites the word "sail" used in the phrase "180 sail," meaning yeah. sailing ships. Um, also, the way that he does the math actually he mm. says. 30 men to each of their fleet of 180 sail. Yeah, that sail. makes sense. We yep. have 5,400 seamen in all. So that that comes out to, it, I think 30 men per ship is what I would expect. And so the way he's doing the math here. 30 men only? Yeah, I guess so. Ships, I am always surprised by how low the, sh- the crew of a non-military ship is. Because a military ship has like nearly double the crew or more than that per space as a non-military ship because a you don't have cargo space and b you need soldiers yeah so uh you know it always slightly surprises me when i think about like merchant vessels uh crewing on in this era sure i don't have a strong sense of how many crew are on any type of ship to be honest Mm -hmm. um but anyway uh it's what it's like seven people six or seven people per boat Mm -hmm. like lowered boat because we know that there's a crew of six uh rowing and a uh and a mate and a harpooner so that's depending on whether the harpooner is just one of the six rowing for most of the thing or if they're the seventh rower um that's six that's seven to eight people on the boat um and there's four of them that would altogether make 28 to over 30 people on the pequod just for the boats not including anyone who stays on the ship to sail it. Yeah, I mean, but the way that Ishmael has talked about it, it does sound like there's only a few people left on the ship when mm. all the boats have lowered. Anyway, um, uh, the point is that when he says 30 men to each of their fleet, yeah. and then calculates that out to 5,400, it makes it sound like 180 sail means 180 ships. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so there's a list of the total number of, like, pounds of Foods. Foods. Beef, pork, stockfish, biscuits, soft bread, butter, texel and laden cheese. Separate entry, much larger for cheese, probably an inferior article. Uh, Geneva, Anchors of Geneva, which I'm not sure if what that is. Uh, anchor, com says an anchor is a measurement equal to 10 gallons and Geneva is gin. Okay. And barrels of beer. Yep. So, lots of cheese and lots of alcohol. Yeah. Um, and, uh... Uh, Ishmael basically does the math out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and based on, you know, his estimation of how many, uh, how large the crew is of each vessel, how many vessels there are, 
and um how long the cruise is likely to be um mm-hmm. which specifies you know in this historical like dutch north sea fishery uh the voyage probably wouldn't be longer than three months because they can only do it during the you know arctic summer um so that comes out to uh as he says precisely two barrels of beer per man for a 12 weeks allowance exclusive of his fair proportion of that 550 anchors of gin um which you know two barrels of beer in 12 weeks plus some amount of gin does sound like a lot of alcohol yes yeah i mean i would be really surprised if these numbers actually worked out because i feel like he's intentionally taking the most like the he's intentionally taking the tack that will produce the most interesting numbers here um i also really enjoy his description of how he uh you know at the time i devoted three days to the studious digesting of all this beer beef and bread uh to describe like doing all the calculations and also the fact that the calculations he describes to us are basically like you can just do them on a napkin and he claims he took three days to do all of them tells me that he did a lot of like tweaking and editing and you know ensuring that the numbers that he gets were funny yeah yeah i mean that's that's maybe a uh an uncharitable take on ishmael he may just be slow i i mean no i i do agree with you Mm -hmm. that it kind of seems more parsimonious to just assume that these numbers are exaggerated or his estimation of the of the number of uh, crew crew is low. low Or um, that he's, ex- or that this is at one time outfitting, but a lot of the things will survive for multiple trips. Like beer and gin don't really go bad if you cask them. Yeah, yeah. There's a number of possibilities here that would kind of uh, reduce the incredible drunkenness of the Dutch crew. <laughs> yes, uh, but but it, Ishmael wants to insist that the historical, uh, you know, Dutch whale fishery has been incredibly extravagant. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, also, I do want to point out, we've skimmed over, but he did say explicitly, for as a general thing, the English merchant ship scrimps her crew, but not so the English whaler. And he's also being like, and the Dutch whaler is like overfed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he also talks about how, now, surely this is unbelievable, because if they were that drunk, how could they possibly hit a whale? But, you know, that's just in the, they're up in the cold northern climates where you just get drunk in different ways. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you were trying to do it around the equator, you'd get sleepy and fall out of your boat. But uh, up in the north, you just need this to keep you sharp. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Anyways, that's more or less the decanter. Do you have anything else you wanted to touch on? Yeah, no, I don't really think there's much more to this. It's, um, it's a very mediocre chapter. It's fine, like... <sighs> but compared to the next one? Yeah, no, the next one's much cooler. Um, Chapter 102... Uh, a bower in the Arsacides. Um, so first off, where are the Arsacides? Uh, it's it's a uh, it, it's a like name for a specific uh, I want to say like a specific cape uh, on one of the Solomon Islands, uh, specifically the island of Melita. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, so yeah. Where are the Solomon Islands? I genuinely don't remember if they're in the Atlantic or the Pacific. Uh, they're in the Pacific. They're they're like part of Oceania, I think. Cool. Um. Anyway, uh. So, uh, basically, he says at this point that um. You know, I've I've talked about like the uh, 
all, all these kinds of details of like whale appearance and whale anatomy. Uh, but now I want to get like as deep into the whale as possible and talk about the whale's skeleton. Yes, um, he describes this as, um, it behooves me now to unbutton him still further and untagging the points of his hose, unbuckling his garters and casting loose the hooks and the eyes of the joints of his, of his innermost bones, set him before you in his ultimata, in his ultimatum, that is to say, in his unconditional skeleton. Also, I'm sorry, I, I butchered that. It's fine. Stumbled over myself. It, it happens to the both of us sometimes. But to be fair, he's also talking about butchering a whale, so... Yeah, yeah, eh, yeah. Eh, eh, um, Sorry. <laughs> and uh, then he's kind of like, oh, well, you might object to this, because uh, how could I possibly know about, like, a whale skeleton? Because, you know, the, you don't actually get to encounter whale skeletons in the normal course of whaling. Yeah, right? you can't lift the whale up onto the ship. It would flip it over. It's too large. You can't, uh, like, take apart the skeleton in the water because it's going to start sinking once you remove all the blubber and such. So, um, you know, uh, explain thyself, Ishmael. Can you land a full-grown whale on your deck for examination as a cook dishes a roast pig? Surely not. A veritable witness have you hitherto been, Ishmael, but have a care how you seize the privilege of Jonah alone, the privilege of discoursing upon the joists and beams, the rafters, ridgepole, sleepers, and underpinnings, making up the framework of Leviathan, and belike of the tallowvats, dairy rooms, butteries, and cheeseries in his bowels. Yeah. Um, it's good. I just, I love the phrase, the privilege of Jonah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Ishmael's explanation for this is uh, based on two different uh, experiences that he's had. One is that at some point uh, he was on a ship where a small sperm whale was actually hoisted onto the deck and he was able to dissect that whale. Um, uh, and then also, and, and really more significantly to this chapter, uh, he once had the opportunity to walk around inside a complete preserved whale skeleton uh, on the Arsacides, that is, on the Solomon Islands. Um, uh, because specifically, uh, apparently he was buddies with, uh, uh, Tronquo, king of Tronque, one of the Arsacides, as yeah. he puts it. Uh, Tranque or, or Tronque, or I don't know, T-R-A-N-Q-U-E, doesn't appear to be a real place as far as I could find. Mm. Yeah, yeah I think that it's doesn't just usually a, surprise me. I think it's just a name he, he made up for, like, a, a place on the Solomon Islands. Yeah, I was surprised by how Shakespearean the name Tronquo is. Yeah, yeah. I assumed it was just a, a, like, transliteration weirdness, but no, he just invented this character. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so... Well, Melville did. I'm sure for Ishmael this is a real person. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> anyway, so supposedly this, uh, this king, um, had a, like, had a, had a villa. Um, yes. And, uh, at that place he had... Basically a museum. Yeah, a, a wonder cabinet. The, the classic collection of a, of a monarch where you just have a bunch of cool stuff. And there's very much a sense, at least to me, because I'm aware that the, the European wonder cabinet or, or royal cabinet had a huge influence on the history of science. This feels a little bit like, oh, this king was like, to some extent interested in like reproducing a certain um, you know European monarch monarchism in doing this. It's like there's a sense that like oh he's just like monarchs in Europe, and yeah. I don't know if that's meant to be because he's just into this thing or if it's meant to be that he's you know copying that fashion. There's no real commentary there. Yeah, I mean from the I find from the way it's discussed that Ishmael is trying to suggest not so much that Tranquo is um, imitating European monarchs and more like 
this is just a, a sort of natural desire of all monarchs. Uh, yeah, king, kings just want to have a bunch of cool stuff in a bit in a big room where they can look at it and go, yeah, yeah, I own a lot of shit. Because here's what it like. Among many other fine qualities, my royal friend Tranquo, being gifted with a devout love for all matters of barbaric virtue, uh, which PowerMobyDick.com cites virtue here as meaning fine arts. It's V-E-R-T-U with an accent on it, not uh, virtue. virtue as in, like, good qualities. Yeah. Uh, although, obviously, you know, etymologically related. But... Well, yes. Had brought together in Pupella whatever rare things the more ingenious of his people could invent. And it goes on to list a bunch of, you know, types cool of stuff. art. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh... And, yeah. and yeah, it's both art, like like you know, uh, carved wood and and spears and you know everything that people might decorate, um, as well as like natural wonders, uh, including the full skeleton of a sperm whale. Yeah, because uh, according to Ishmael, at one point a massive storm had thrown a full adult, like a very actually quite large sperm whale up upon the uh, shore far enough that, uh, as he describes it, the um, or I guess the way it was described to him, is that the palm trees that it was resting against seemed to be its spout. Yes. Uh, and, you know, once the body was, um, you know, once the bones were stripped, uh, they, they carried the skeleton to, like, a... Um, a, like, a clearing in the yeah, forest. Yeah, like a grove, basically. Yes. Um, and, and they... Uh, you know, kind of like hung it up and decorated it. Um, yes. The ribs were hung with trophies. The vertebrae were carved with Arsacidian annals in strange hieroglyphics. In the skull, the priests kept up an unextinguished aromatic flame so that the mystic head again sent forth its vapory spout. While suspended from a bow, the terrific lower jaw vibrated over all the devotees like the hair-hung sword that so affrighted Damocles. So... Ishmael's definitely giving us, you know, this is like, this is a temple. This is a shrine to the yeah. whale. Yeah, it is a, it is, it is a, like, religious, uh, an object or a space of religious veneration. And, um, Ishmael, in fact, has intense religious feelings about it. Yeah, I honestly, like, I, I, I'm very glad that you just read that paragraph. I honestly feel that the next two also deserve to just be read. Oh, but there's so much there. I mean, it's, it's. They're a little long, but I, I feel like they've just got enough going on that I just want to hear them. Um, that's fair enough. Do you want me to, or? Um, uh, I, I kind of want to take them, if, if that's cool with you. Okay. Uh, it was a wondrous sight. The wood was green as mosses of the icy glen. The trees stood high and haughty, feeling their living sap. The industrious earth beneath was as a weaver's loom with a gorgeous carpet on it, whereof the ground vine tendrils formed the warp and woof, and the living flowers the figures. All the trees with all their laden branches, all the shrubs and ferns and grasses, the message-carrying air, all these unceasingly were active. Through the lacings of the leaves, the great sun seemed a flying shuttle weaving the unwearied verdure. Oh, busy weaver, unseen weaver, pause, one word, whither flows the fabric? What palace may it deck? Wherefore all these ceaseless toilings? Speak, weaver, stay thy hand, but one single word with thee. Nay, the shuttle flies, the figures float from forth the loom, the freshet rushing carpet forever slides away. The weaver god, he weaves, and by that weaving is he deafened, that he hears no mortal voice. And by that humming, we too, who look on the loom, are deafened, and only when we escape it shall we hear the thousand voices that speak through it. For even so it is in all material factories. 
The spoken words that are inaudible among the flying spindles, those same words are plainly heard without the walls, bursting from the open casements. Thereby have villainies been detected. Ah, mortal, then be heedful, for so in all this din of the great world's loom thy subtlest thinkings may be overheard afar. Now, amid the green, life-restless loom of that Arsacidian wood, the great, white, worshipped skeleton lay lounging, a gigantic idler. Yet, as the ever-woven verdant warp and woof intermixed and hummed around him, the mighty idler seemed the cunning weaver, himself all woven over with the vines, every month assuming greener, fresher verdure, but himself a skeleton. Life folded death, death trellised life, the grim god wived with youthful life and begat him curly-headed glories. Yeah, it's a lot. We should go back and actually step through it, because that's... Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. Um, in particular, uh, I really enjoy the imagery of, you know, the, the sun through the trees and its motion creating this uh, unstillness, this, this never-ceasing uh, constant motion that Ishmael likens to the motion of a loom. And, you know, this is not the first place we've seen the idea of uh, God working a loom. Yeah, yeah, that was also in like Pip's revelation. Um, yes, uh, he saw the foot. He saw the foot of God on the treadle of the loom. Yes, um, and that God is also refer. You know, the kind of God being presented here, which is a God that does not sense or care about the world, simply materially creates it constantly. A deafened God and one who cannot or does not choose to hear the, you know, exhortations or prayers of, uh, you know, the people within the world that is woven. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think what you were just implying there, Ben, is that this this is, in many ways, the uh, Gnostic picture of the creator God. Like, this is a... Um, a demiurge. Yeah, a... Um, like a yeah dab yell daboeth or whatever like yeah um th this is a a god who constantly creates but who is like distant and unaware and to some extent driven by urge also comparable to the rather than the gnostic but also the platonic demiurge which or the neoplatonic demiurge is not necessarily evil but is constantly but is uh only the shaper of forms that come from a higher uh, sort of order. Yes. And uh, I think that's also notable in the idea that there are a thousand voices behind the, uh, behind the fabric, behind the loom, that there is this larger outside world, which, because of the constant production of material reality, we are hidden from it, presumably only to, uh, after life or in some spiritual way, experience that outer world. Yeah, like, I think it's very interesting also this part at the end of the first paragraph that I read where he's saying that, you know, uh, while, you know, we and the weaver are, like, deafened by the humming of the loom, we may be heard outside of, like, the, the weaving room, right? Uh, yeah. Thy subtlest thinkings may be overheard afar. And so the question is, overheard by whom? Well, uh, in, the, in the Gnostic uh, sort of framework, that would be uh, the pleroma, the fullness of, you know, divine godhead, etc., etc., all the various, you know, entities arising from that. Obviously, that's just one version of Gnosticism, but it's generally gestural, I think, here. Um, that there are, like, powers, often benevolent or at least not entrapped within the material world, that are 
involved in and interested in the world, but to some extent barred from it or only able to intervene to try to rescue people from it. You know, the classic Gnosticism is that Jesus is a, you know, an entity sent into the world uh, via the Demiurge, but having a higher spirit in order to help liberate people. Yes. And uh, I think there's also the implication that it is maybe like, uh, you know, people after death who have escaped the loom uh you know only when we escape it shall we hear the thousand voices that speak through it uh yeah so you know you you were talking about those thousand voices as being like kind of the angels effectively yeah but i also think that could be interpreted as being the voices of people on earth like only when we escape the loom mm. shall we hear all the voices on earth that are like calling out that are calling mm. out to the weaver right? yeah, yeah, yeah the the and you know that to some extent this fits his his universalism it's that he's saying that the thousand voices that speak through it not from outside but within that we cannot currently hear that we are all deafened to each other which is a you know that's a, a relatively sort of charming and positive way of approaching it although he also you know he's he's not actually saying it's not purely positively presented as like uh, our our sort of our entreaties are heard by ourselves when we escape the loom. He's also kind of saying, I mean, by his comparison, right? To yeah, like, thereby a villainy's been detected. Yeah, exactly. So part of what he's saying is like, you know, your your thoughts, your sins, may be perceived by beings outside the world. Yeah, well, that's pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then of course there's the. Um, uh, the general sense of motion, I think, is is important here as well, because he has this sort of panpsychism or panvitalism that often appears in the book. Ishmael is very convinced of the world being sort of filled with an energy and a life. And that is very much present in, like, the way the bower looks. The fact that it's constantly moving with breezes, uh, you know, the message-carrying air, the... Um, all these things were unceasingly active. This motion of greenery and... First of all, I think that's just a very beautiful image, but also it's it speaks to this idea that this world is all sort of humming with life, even if that life is, you know, material and materially created. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's the next paragraph, which is all about the idea that life is arising and playing within the space of the whale's death. Yes, yeah, and, and, and he, doesn't, you know, he doesn't quite literally say the whale is like the weaver god but he does say you know the the mighty idler seemed the cunning weaver like um the the like ishmael definitely credits the idea that there is something possibly divine but also terrible in this whale skeleton yes um which speaking of that thing where the um the uh there's a fire constantly kept alight in the skull so that the smoke goes up like a spout that's very cool yeah, no, that that rules. <laughs> yeah, just, I just wanted to mention that. <sighs> and uh, so, having visited this, uh, what he described as this wondrous whale, and seeing the altar and the various um, elements of art that have been lavished upon it, uh, and Ishmael decides that he's going to measure it. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's this sort of interesting thing uh, th that he kind of he he he's amazed by all of it in a way that I think is slightly condescending. Oh you yeah, know? absolutely. Uh, he says, "I I marvel that the king should regard a chapel as an object of, of virtue." Um, 
uh, of art. Yeah. And then, but more I marveled that the priest should swear that smoky jet of his was genuine. So apparently the, the priests are claiming that like the, you know, the The whale whale simply exudes this uh, jet. Yeah. And, and Ishmael is like, well, obviously it's a fire that they are constantly keeping burning. Yeah. Um, Which is kind of like, you know, Ishmael, that's like not how, like there are doubtless like ever burning flames in like European or like Western uh, religious spaces that like, you know, basically you're just be you're just feeling that he's being condescending. Uh, yes. yes, I guess what I'm saying is he's being he because there is a like material uh, project of like maintaining this holy space he's saying well therefore it can't be real and it's like come on well it's also that he's interested in uh like right now he's playing the scientist usually he plays the opposite side of this dynamic but right now he's playing the one the european who just wants to get the physical measurements of the thing he's just described this incredible beauty and even theophany and now he's saying then i pulled out some twine and a measuring stick and i made a go of getting some numbers i will now give you those numbers like on some level he's like there's a weird dynamic here because normally ishmael is a little bit less condescending towards you know non-christian stuff than here but right here he's presenting himself as like the one who has raided this shrine for its mysteries because the whale for him is like a physical organism as much as it is a you know sign of the divine so it's, it's the movement of the plants and the greenery and the the world around it that he'll credit with a divinity but the whale itself is an object to be studied broken op- broken into and extracted Although I do think it's interesting that, um, I mean, describing the way that he interacts with the skeleton, the first thing that he does is not actually start to measure it, but just kind of wander around in it. Um, And, you know, he he, it is one... He he describes it like the labyrinth at Minos. Yes, what I was about to say is he he says this thing about, uh, with a ball of Arsacidian twine, wandered, eddied long amid its many winding, shaded colonnades and arbors, but soon my line was out. So, like, he's, he's claiming that he... You know, literally... Got- Could have gotten lost in the skeleton, yeah. Yeah, um, as if, you know, as if in the, the myth of the the labyrinth, um, mm-hmm. with the minotaur. Um, but, um, it, after that, mm-hmm. like, a- after he finishes that wandering and, and emerges again, that's when he's like, alright, now I'm going to go measure this. Um, also... The priests apparently all live in, like, just are hiding out in the skull of the whale. Because specifically, when he, like, cuts a measuring stick and he's like, all right, I'm going to start measuring things. Uh, the From their arrow slit in the skull, the priests perceived me taking the altitude of the final rib. How now, they shouted, darest thou measure this our god? That's for us! Yeah. Um... And then he uh, has a comic interlude in which he tricks them into letting him measure it by asking them okay well what are your measurements and then they all start arguing about the proper way to measure it so he can just get about it and while they're all fussing he successfully gets away with measurements yes uh and now um before actually telling us how big he measured this whale skeleton as he's he's in he's concerned to assert his bona fides by saying like okay look um i'm not in a position to just make anything up because there are actually 
whale skeletons on land in like western museums that you could go check to to see whether i'm right just none of them were as good as this one yes because all of the all of the whale skeletons that he lists as as being you know available ashore to his readers are like some of them are other species right so there's like mm-hmm. finbacks and other whales um uh, there's a there's a right whale um and then also, uh, there is a sp- there is a sperm whale somewhere, but of moderate size. By no means of the full-grown magnitude of my friend King Tranquos. <laughs> so, like, he's really just given himself a perfect out here. Because if you go and look at the full sperm whale skeleton in Yorkshire, and you're like, hold on, Ishmael. This full-grown sperm whale skeleton is a lot smaller than you cited the one that you saw. Ishmael's just like, well, yeah, that was a smaller one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Also, I gotta say, is this, um, because this uh, Yorkshire skeleton was acquired via the, you know, right to claim a whale that uh, is, you know, a signatory of the crown and that we've previously seen discussed in Fast Fish and Loose Fish, do you think it's the same whale? Do you think this skeleton came from that one that was seized from whalers on behalf of, uh... I... I've got absolutely no idea. Um, I'm going to try to find out, because I, I didn't bother to look at this before, but now I'm curious whether this Yorkshire whale existed. <laughs> ah. He also notes that um, in both cases, the stranded whales to which these two skeletons belonged were originally claimed by their proprietors upon similar grounds. King Tronquo seized his because he wanted it, and Sir Clifford because he was lord of the segnaries of those parts. And it's just like, Yep, fast whale, loose, fast fish, and loose fish. You told us this before, Ishmael. Yeah, yeah. It looks like this is a real whale skeleton uh, that that really did exist in this. And they, you can still get pay money to see the whale skeleton, which Ishmael describes in the book. Yes. Um... Although it does not look like it's actually arranged the way that Ishmael says it is, which is where it's been articulated throughout, so that like a great chest of drawers, you can open and shut him in all his bony cavities, spread out his ribs like a gigantic fan, and swing all day upon his lower jaw. It looks like it's more, um, laid out on the ground. Well, I mean, so this visithole.org, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously a site of tourist information for visiting Hull, um, says, The skeleton of the whale became a well-known item in Sir Clifford's collection and was mounted on a wrought iron frame in the Parkland from 1836. Um, And, like, so the picture that you're looking at where you're like, well, it doesn't look like it's articulated, I think that's a modern picture for when they were, like... Like, I think that it is not articulated now in the way that it was in the 19th century. Yeah, I guess so. I just, I don't... I don't see how you'd articulate that given how the large sections that are fragmentary, including the lower jaw. I mean, with a bunch of wires. Yes, it's but you mounted can't... on a wrought iron frame. Yeah, but if it's... that's very different from being able to like fold it or move it around like a gunpla. <laughs> okay, yes, I, you're right. I that think is Ishmael... that is the thing I was expressing a dis, uh, disbelief in. Ishmael's claiming that it's been like hinged and jointed so you can pose it. I don't believe him. Okay, that's fair. Yes, thank you. Um. Uh, anyways, uh, he also has the various uh, measurements, which he claims to have tattooed verbatim onto his right arm. Yes, uh, because 
you know, he didn't have any paper at the time, I guess. Yeah, it was there was no other secure way of preserving such valuable statistics. I think it's less that he didn't have paper and more that if he did have paper, it might get wet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but he does specify, um, I didn't record the inches, only the feet, as I was crowded for space and wished the other parts of my body to remain a blank page for a poem I was then composing. At least what untattooed parts might remain. So, like... Ishmael's just like, yeah, I've, I've got some tattoos. I'm maybe going to write a poem on here, but also might get some other tattoos. So I just took this down without any reference to inches. But come on, a whale is huge. The inches don't matter. I just love the idea of Ishmael just being covered with, like, random notes. Like, oh, the way that you like or I... memento. The way that you or I might just have, like, a bunch of post-it notes on our desk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, do you find that hard to believe about Ishmael? No, not even a little bit. <laughs> uh, Anyways, he then spends, uh, he then does not actually get to the measurements in this chapter. Yep. It is, in fact, the next chapter. Yep. Measurement of the whale's skeleton, chapter 103. Yes. Um, so, uh, Ishmael's, uh, calculation is that the largest sperm whale is, uh, between 85 and 90 feet in length, which is, and, uh, a little less than 40 feet in circumference and 90 tons in weight, which is significantly under modern estimations of the largest sperm whales. Woo! Leviathans. Like, <laughs> yeah. come on, that's, that is a victory for Ishmael. He's being as conservative as possible. He's trying what? to- What? No. Ishmael's Sorry. estimations are significantly- Oh, I- I misstated. I'm sorry. I, I, to I said the opposite of what I meant. <sighs> Damn it. I'm so, so sorry. No. Modern estimation of the length of the longest sperm whale is up to 68 feet long. Oh. And 79 tons. I'm incredibly disappointed, Mark. Look, blue whales are a lot bigger than that. Yeah, I know, but it would have been so good if Ishmael was actually being a little bit conservative. It would no, have been so good. I, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry that I misspoke, but I, I, this has come up before. That Ishmael's estimation of the size of whales is exaggerated, at least according to modern science. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I feel like is a little complicated here is that, like... Giant sperm whales got viciously hunted across the entire globe for an extended period of time. Yes, and we don't actually have, like, what I think what be, could be considered, like, exact, accurate numbers on the size of whales in the 19th century. Yes. Um... Similarly to how we don't have, like, a way of checking whether the sightings of hundreds of whales were exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, uh, this will come up more in the last chapter, where he talks a little bit about some of the... Yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that, like... This conversation will continue. Yes, and, and, and the, the thing that I want to mention is that, like, the records that we do have from scientific sources in the 19th century of the size of sperm whales some of them are absurd <laughs> yeah yeah the um some of the size claims that are made from earlier than the 19th century even are big well but I, it's my point to make the 19th century to say like as late as yeah, this time okay. as late as people whom we like you know there are scientific measurements from the 19th century that oh, are certainly. relatively credited today. However, yeah, this... the state of cetology... <laughs> the state of cetology, as Ishmael has been keen to tell us, is that it shall never understand the whale. Leviathan is without our understanding, and its size being measured is still not a definite understanding of the whale's size. Yes. Um, 
Which, again, it's really funny that he briefly takes the, like, and then I measured it while all the people who just think the whale is, like, cool and divine were faffing about. <laughs> yes. Because, uh, specifically, when it's Ishmael's authority that's being improved by it, the whale is totally knowable. <laughs> yes. Because he, he gives himself the privilege of Jonah. Yeah. <sighs> so, um... Anyways, they're... So, his idea of whales is too big. Sigh. God, I... I'm so sad for misspeaking like that. I, you really got my hopes up. I really, really did. Um, Anyways. Supposedly the, the skeleton at, at Trank uh, measured 72 feet, uh, which Ishmael says means that when it was alive, the whale would have been 90 feet long because the skeleton loses a significant amount of length. Yeah, which is presumably due to connective tissues and also the fact that there's, like, feet of blubber in every direction and so on. Yeah, yeah. Like, I I find it perfectly believable that a whale skeleton is shorter than a whale. Yeah. By a, not just by, like, the flukes and the blubber, but also by the connective tissue and the general stuff going on. Because a lot of a whale isn't present in the skeleton. Ishmael's at pains to let us know this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he compares, uh, the, like, the, the, the rib cage of the whale to, like, uh, a ship that is in the process of being built. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is cool. Yeah, yeah. Where the, you begin with the keel, which he compares to the spine, and the first, I mean, they're called ribs in the ship as well, uh, but the first planks of the hull that are going to be filled in to the ribs. Yeah. Uh, and he he, uh, he describes the ribs and and uh, the size of them and the way that they like uh, grow and, and taper. Um, supposedly the the largest one is uh, eight feet and some inches long. Um, yep, he's generally impressed by the size of all these. I just want to put that out there that this has an aura of like it's so big. Yeah. Um, and he also makes sure to state that, yeah, um, I cannot but be struck anew with the circumstance so variously repeated in this book, yes, I know, Ishmael, that <laughs> the skeleton of the whale is by no means the mold of his invested form. Like, if you look at the skeleton of a whale, you have a very hard time understanding what a whale actually looks like. Yes. Uh, and of course, uh, this takes into his, his oft-repeated point that in order to understand a whale, you've got to go whaling. Yep, yep. Uh, how vain and foolish, then, thought I, for timid, untraveled man to try to comprehend to write this wondrous whale by merely poring over his dead, attenuated skeleton stretched in this peaceful wood. No, only in the heart of quickest perils, only when within the eddyings of his angry flukes, only on the profound, unbounded sea, can the fully invested whale be truly and livingly found out. Yep, just wanted to make sure you understand that all of the measuring and such that he's been doing here does not actually tell you anything meaningful about the whale. This chapter is pointless, says Ishmael, <laughs> loudly banging his fist on the table. These things I tattooed on me, they're just trivia. <laughs> I mean... They are. Yes. Uh, I also really like that that no is just its own sentence, just no. Someday I'm absolutely going to, like, have put in something no... Moby Dick. <laughs> Herman Cute. Melville. Cute. <sighs> I also think it's very funny that he has that paragraph, but that's not how he ends the chapter. Oh, no, 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 no. Then he just does need to give us a few more details on what the spine looks like. Yeah, yeah, but the spine, for that, the best way we consider it is with a crane to pile its bones high up on end. No speedy enterprise. But now it's done, it looks much like Pompey's pillar. So he's just saying that the spine is big. 
Yeah, yeah. Pompey's pillar is like a, a triumphal column in Alexandria mm-hmm. in Egypt. Yep, yep. So you know, a column, a big, a big piece of building. Yeah, I do like the note that um, the uh, vertebrae uh, are, you know, first of all, there's about 40-some, 40, 40 and they range from being, like, three feet long and, or, like, three feet deep and two feet wide or something. Um, oh, no, sorry. With something less than three feet and in depth more than four. So, like, huge. Just a giant, uh, you know, knob of bone. That's like the- a moderately sized bookshelf. Yeah, I was thinking of a child. It's like the size of a child. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the smallest ones at the end are so small that he has this cute, you know, mention that they'd been lost because some of the, like, children running around the palace had stolen them to play marbles with and lost them because they're so small. Yeah. It's cute. Thus, we see that the, how that the spine of even the hugest of living things tapers off at last into simple child's play. It's a, it's a cute ending to the chapter. It is. Oh. Yeah. And this leads us uh, to what I think is a very reasonable continuation of the theme in chapter 104, The Fossil Whale. Yeah, so chapter 104 is about whale fossils. Yep, the fossil, fossil whale. whale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I really enjoy the beginning of this chapter because um, it really gives kind of a thesis statement for a certain elements of the the form of the book yes. the formal qualities of moby dick can be explained by this phrase from his mighty bulk the whale affords a most congenial theme whereon to enlarge amplify and generally expatiate would you you could not compress him by good rights he should only be treated of in imperial folio he should only be treated of in large books yeah you are you are basically holding the imperial folio yes um i mean okay technically I don't know. Well, according to PowerMobyDick.com, an imperial folio is 15 inches by 22 inches. Your book okay. isn't quite that big. No. But, but yeah. It, it is, however, shaped approximately like a cinder block. Yes. Uh, like, he is basically saying, whales are so big that you have to talk about them in a big book. Look, Mark, I, I don't I, I don't mean to make an issue of it, but we have like 30 hours of this podcast already. <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, uh, I, I, I am not trying to disagree with him. I just <laughs> wanted to state what he's saying in as plain a fashion as possible. Yes, and it's not just a big book. It's also big words. Yes, they have to be described expansively. Since I have undertaken to manhandle this leviathan, it behooves me to approve myself omnisciently exhaustive in the enterprise, not overlooking the minutest seminal germs of his blood, and spitting him out to the uttermost coil of his bowels. Having already described him in most of his present habitatory and anatomical peculiarities, it now remains to magnify him in an archaeological, fossiliferous, and antediluvian point of view, applied to any other creature than the leviathan, to an ant or a flea, such portly terms might justly be deemed unwarrantably grandiloquent. But when leviathan is the text... The case is altered. He's basically arguing that when he starts talking about Leviathan, he's going to start using a thesaurus to death. And in fact, he explicitly states that he has Johnson's thesaurus with him. I think it's a dictionary, not a thesaurus. That Same Johnson... but, basic but, but, but no, issue. absolutely. 100%. I, I do think it's very funny because, like, uh, like, sometimes it can be easy to forget when you're reading Moby Dick. You can just kind of be like, yeah, 19th century novels are wordy. And, like, use a bunch of, like, 
words that feel like sort of uh, obscure. Five dollar words. Yeah, five dollar words. Um, and like that's not untrue in in general, but like, no, Moby Dick specifically is doing that on purpose. Like Moby Dick seems wordy and elaborate. And, like, it is using three words where one would do to a contemporary reader. Yes. It's just doing that. Um. Ah, because when Leviathan is the text, the case is altered. Yes. Uh, also, he specifies it's Johnson's dictionary because Johnson himself was, like, a portly man and therefore has some sympathy with Leviathan. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, his uncommon personal bulk more fitted him to compile a lexicon to be used by a whale author like me. God, Moby Dick. The first instance of whale core, the idea that a whale is to itself a genre. <laughs> I mean, yes. Uh, and and yep, he yep. also says that, like, he himself in writing the book is, like, his his handwriting is expanding. You mean his chirography expands into placard capitals. Yes. But I do love his, you know, like... Uh, you know, declaring he needs a larger quill and more ink. Friends, hold my arms! Yeah. Because he's carrying a whale. Yep. Ah, for in the mere act of penning my thoughts of this leviathan, they weary me and make me faint with their outstretching comprehensiveness of sweep, as if to include the whole circle of the sciences. Ah, and, and more and more and more. He goes on. It's... It's extensive, it's fun. I had fun reading that section of it, but we should probably restrain ourselves from just reading these entire chapters. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that in this part, he more or less states explicitly something that we've kind of discussed before, which is that it's, it seems as though this book is undertaking in some sense to describe an entire world, the world of whaling, and in, in so doing to really kind of include the entire world. I mean, he pretty much yep. says that... As if to include the whole circle of the sciences and all the generations of whales and men and mastodons, past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas <laughs> of empire on Earth and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. <laughs> so yeah, if you find the suburbs of the universe and they turn out not to have been described in Moby Dick, uh, you should um, write Melville for your money back. <laughs> so, fossil whales. Um, God, we expand to its bulk. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. And then he says basically that microbiology ain't shit. <laughs> like, uh, no great and enduring volume can ever be written on the flea, though many there be who have tried it. Yeah. That's that's real unkind, especially given that there's some very influential books of, like, uh, photography or, or like, uh, not photography, but, like, um, microscope-like illustration of fleas and small animals that were a huge part of it that were he certainly had run into like you know hooks writing and so on yeah oh definitely yes um uh but yeah god uh some of my favorite words just from this section by the way uh antediluvian always a favor uh favorite unwarrantably grandiloquent uh chirography um fossiliferous yeah there's some great ones. We should just keep an eye out for good words for this entire chapter. Yeah. So, so, uh, but I, I do want to move on from the, yep, yep. the pure discussion of the aesthetics of largeness <laughs> <laughs> to uh, fossil whales. Listen, um, a grand theme in Biggins, the smallest man. Uh, so, um, he does uh, want to give himself uh, certain credentials in talking about fossil whales by saying, like, oh, well, 
I'm a geologist because uh, I've been a ditch digger. Yeah, no, the um that bit he's uh his pre- his credentials as a geologist by stating that in my miscellaneous time I've been a stonemason and also a great digger of ditches, canals, and wells, wine vaults, cellars, and cisterns of all short sorts. Uh, it's like you're not going to mention your education at all because you like you taught things in in schools, but no. No, yeah. it's just, I've done a bunch of manual labor in which I've moved rocks and dirt. Yes. Uh, and, uh, so now he's going to talk about geological time. Yes. And, like, periodization of fossils. Oh, and it's fascinating. It is, uh, because he talks about, talks about, like, okay, the earliest fossils are of the fossils of monsters now almost completely extinct. So presumably in that he's referring to like dinosaurs, right? So like I think what he means here by monsters now almost completely extinct is not just like literally things that aren't around anymore. Because I think at this point Cuvier is pretty conclusively convinced everyone that extinction occurs and yeah. that many fossil forms are extinct. It's you know, there was a there's a certain outlook that exists in the nineteenth century that extinction isn't real, that any any species of animals having come into existence could not possibly vanish uh, for a mixture of theological and uh, sort of natural hierarchical concepts. Like the idea that there's a great chain of being, that in order to have anything, you have to have each step in that chain, which is why things like mosquitoes and other animals we don't like exist is because they're somehow metaphysically necessary. Extinction breaks that. If you allow a thing to go extinct, then obviously the great chain of being can't operate that way. But when he says almost entirely extinct, I don't think he means that, like, oh, there's some hidden off somewhere, which is the, you know, classic, you know, version of extinction's not real. I think he means things that have almost no obvious relatives or, like, similar species in the common day. Especially because of the use of monster, which uh, in this period of time was used not just to mean, like, oh, cool big monstery thing, but also, like something that has no obvious relation to others, something that is broken with its lineage or is not connected to other things. It's something that is out of place in nature. Yeah, and, and that is why, like, I mentioned, you know, dinosaurs, because yeah. generally speaking, although, you know, of course, we now know that, like, birds birds, birds are the descendants <laughs> of dinosaurs, but, but like, it, you know, if you look at, like, a dinosaur skeleton, you're like, damn, nothing exists that looks like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but he draws a contrast between that type of fossil and later ones uh, found in the tertiary period, which is a, 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 a geological period that we still talk about. Um, yep, yep. Which he describes as containing fossils which seem the connecting, or at any rate, intercepted links between the antichronical creatures and those whose remote posterity are said to have entered the Ark. Also, antichronical, good word. Yeah, antichronical, powermobydick.com cites as meaning from before time... Okay, first of all, okay. (laughs) Okay, okay, (laughs) right. You're so excited I forgot about this. So antichronical, I think just the literal meaning of the word is like before time was measured. So he's by antichronical creatures... Before chronicles. Yes, um... As opposed to those whose remote posterity are said to have entered the Ark. So, okay, the Ark is involved. Yeah, the Ark is here. We have an Ark. And and he's he's drawing a contrast, I guess, between... Uh, he, he's saying that the tertiary fossils are creatures that connect antichronical creatures like, say, dinosaurs. The ones he referred to before that are monsters almost now completely extinct. 
links between that and like so I am somewhat I, modern creatures. So I interpret it slightly differently. The tertiary period are those creatures that are the links between surviving lineages from before the Ark. That is to say, those animals which entering the Ark therefore survived the Deluge. Those whose remote posterity are said to have entered the Ark. Yes, and the antichronical creatures are... Remember, those whose remote posterity means the animals now that continue to exist. Yeah, no, that's what I was... Yeah, yeah, and, and the... Sorry, I, I misunderstood what you meant there. I thought you were disagreeing. And the antichronical creatures being just those significantly before the Ark. So some antichronical creatures, their lineages go extinct. Some enter the Ark and continue. So the tertiary period is the era of links, of intermediary, like, forms, which is not a great term for talking about fossils. But in any case, the it is the era for things that are in between super prehistoric antediluvian things, some of which died out, and the ones that survived into the modern day in other forms. Yes. Um, and, and I... Uh, so... But we still need to define... How, how are Moby Dick defines antichronical? Right. So here's the, here's the other thing, and this is not in... This is not a Moby Dick thing. This is purely a PowerMobyDick.com thing. In defining... As usual, we are sponsored by PowerMobyDick.com in no way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> PowerMobyDick.com defines the word antichronical as meaning... From before time was measured, parentheses, by man. What? <laughs> by who else? Are you telling me that the dinosaurs measured time? What are you talking about? Who Mark, else measures time? It is written in the Book of Enoch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Yes. PowerMobyDick.com is is crediting the, the Nephilim. The Nephilim, the like pre-flood. Look in the Book of Enoch, the Nephilim are the ones who, uh, or possibly the Rebel Angels, are the ones who teach mankind all sorts of things. I'm sure you can find the measurement of time in one of those lists. It's things the Babylonians did, and therefore was probably bad. According, I mean, the Book of Enoch is hundreds of years later than that. Anyways, regardless, wild PowerMobyDick.com Nephilim alien truthers. By man. <laughs> before time was measured by man. Like, if it wasn't parenthetical, it was just before time was measured by man. That, that, that would, would be poetic. But but not, yeah, it, it would not stand out as saying, like, wait a minute, who else are you saying measured time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Currently, it's implying that there's antichronical, before time was measured by man, and some other terminology that would be from before time was measured, period. It's making that distinction. And it's making it really clear by having the little parenthetical, which is like a modifier rather than poetic language. So it's like, you know, here is, uh, you know, if we wanted to talk about before time was measured, we couldn't uh, actually, you know, talk about this period of time. It would be a much deeper period of time because something? Yeah. <sighs> Anyways, PowerMobyDick.com. Nephilim truthers. Yeah. All right. Back to actual Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's another really great word that we're going to get to in a little bit, which is pre-Adamite whales. Yeah. The so idea of whales before Adam, which, uh, so if you're taking a very literal reading of the book of Genesis, you have like, uh, you have two options here, in my opinion. One of them is that whales were created along with the animals on like, what is it, the third day? And then man was created after that. So pre-Adamite is a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. But the other option is that, uh, well, um, nothing moved on the face of the deep, but we never said anything about nothing moving inside the deep. 
Yeah, 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 that, that, uh, you're proposing that Ishmael may be suggesting that the whale was not created. Or was at least before creation. Sure. I'm trying to get to the fucking Wikipedia page for Genesis, and it's much harder than I would have expected. Because I, look, I expected that if I typed Genesis into Google, what if maybe, I don't know, the top three results would be the Wikipedia page for the book of Genesis? But this was not the fucking case. Was it mostly prog rock? I, I mean, yes, the, the, the first Wikipedia link was the band the Genesis, band Genesis. The, the famous prog rock band ridiculous i consider this a victory for prog rock everywhere yeah i suppose anyway i wanted to do this just so i could check on which day the animals were created um is it three four i can't remember how many fucking days are there in the genesis it's one week this is taking more time than i expected and i don't fully understand why um like, I would have expected there there would be a Wikipedia page. I think you need page. to just open, like, a copy of the Bible. Or, I guess, search Days of Creation. You know, you're right that I need to, at this point, just open the fucking Bible. Um, Fifth day. Creatures that live in the sea and creatures that fly. Yeah, now this is some sort of, like, religious studies guide on the BBC, not the actual Bible, which is, you know... Um, uh, I mean, yeah, because the Bible doesn't have the phrase Days of Creation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, like, uh, Whales yeah. would have been created on the fifth day, so that does give them about a day before... Pre-Adamite whales get about a day in that very literal reading. We have definitely spent too much time on my goofy line. Yeah, yeah, and this is the... Yeah, okay. <sighs> yeah, I do want to talk, though, about the way that this chapter is, like, integrating a sense of geological time and a sense of, like, uh, you know... Biblical time. Biblical time, yes, um... Because it sounds to me like... It's extremely 19th century in that respect. Yes. It sounds to me like... Okay, I'm going to propose what I think Ishmael's... Maybe we should finish the account of the fossils and get... And, like, have... Discuss that account of time. Like the whole chapter? Yeah, between 104... But before uh, chapter 105. Because there's a bunch of stuff about, like, Cuvier and different forms of fossil ways. And I think it will help illuminate how Ishmael's thinking about time. At least a little bit. Uh, well, I'm genuinely confused at this point, and I want to get your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's... I don't think Ishmael has a particularly coherent model. Okay, I want to lay out what I think is being implied, and I want you to tell me where the incoherence is. Okay? Okay. That's I, what I'd like to do. I'm just saying that I think that having the full account of the, the fossils out before the viewers, be- readers, listeners, listeners, before... Uh, I guess this is a distinction in how you and I were reading this. As I was reading this chapter, and I got to words like antediluvian and pre-Adamite, I was like, antichronicle. I was like, okay, what the hell? When does he think Adam happened relative to the dinosaurs? That was foremost in my mind. I could not ignore that as I went forward. Um, But I do understand what you're trying to say, which is maybe we should engage with all the text that is relevant to that concept before we try to hash it out yes i'm just trying to tell you that like oh when you hit this point your your brain burst a gasket i could not go forward to the stuff about this like alabama which by the way wasn't found in alabama (laughs) this alabama fossil how i could not go forward with that without trying to in my mind arrange some kind of dinosaurs x genesis 
timeline. But maybe you're right that we should save that for later. Yeah, I mean, I think I, the I, fossils and Cuvier and all that really lead into that idea. And I don't, I think that part of the incoherence is that you need to look at it in the context of the, what was being dug up at the time. Okay. You've convinced me. Let's move forward. All right. I just, I wanted to express my experience. Yeah, that's Now that I've done fair. that. Anyways, detached broken fossils of pre-Adamite whales. Fragments of their bones and skeletons have within 30 years past, at various intervals, been found at the base of the Alps, in Lombardy, in France, in England, in Scotland, in the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Uh. Yeah, um, and, you know, this is, like, this period of time, the the, the first half of the 19th century, is a, a period of discovering a lot of fossils, yeah? Yes, it's, it's both... It is a discovery of fossils, and also it's starting to actually use fossils to construct an image of historical time. You know, archaeology really in some ways explodes with Egyptomania uh, after Napoleon's um, campaigns in Egypt, so the very early 1800s. And I think paleontology has a pretty similar uh, period of explosion, especially with people like Cuvier, with voyages of discovery, like just running into fossils uh, around the world. And also, with the discovery, with the globe being sort of closed out and naturalists combing over it, it becomes harder and harder to argue that these fossils are currently living animals. Mm -hmm. So it becomes clear that there were once very different animals. And so this is also the period when you get some of the first, like, attempts to depict the prehistoric world. Like, even the phrase, the prehistoric world, is... I think something that more or less dates from this period because you've got this like, wow, it was full of weird, horrible fish monsters. And you get these really cool Victorian and early Victorian depictions of like just an endless swarm of toothy, fanged creatures. Like any of the scenes in Land Before Time that gave you nightmares as a kid um, come from this history of depicting the antediluvian world as like, full of monsters constantly gnashing and fighting each other. Volcanoes are always going off in the distance. Uh, the seas are always wild and, you know, roaring with, uh, you know, waves. Because on some level, this was, like, a depiction of a world before a human order and an understanding, and it was alien, and it was kind of distressing to religious sensibilities, and all of these things added up to basically depicting the prehistoric world and specifically the world of dinosaurs as like hell yeah um, and i think that's an important context for some of the stuff going on here yeah i did realize as i was talking about it that i i i want to like be a slightly more precise in our language like human beings have been quote discovering fossils oh like, yeah certainly. Pe people have like found fossils I would and they've assume. even been putting them into their uh epistemological like uh framework they've been understanding fossils in terms of i mean often creatures that they knew existed at the time or larger humans uh mammoth bones got understood to be giants so much that there is an abraham lincoln speech in which he says that it is known that there was a race of giants in the americas at some point uh which yeah. uh people who are now nephilim truthers like powermobydick.com uh constantly point to as proof that the nephilim truth has been hidden because there were giants we Lincoln knew. Lincoln's smart. He's tall. Maybe Lincoln was a giant. <laughs> they're, they're not usually claiming Lincoln was a giant. I just don't have a lot of respect for Nephilim truthers. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. A anyway, yeah. So when I say, like, discovered, I mean, like, you know, incorporated into, like, a... Uh... The particular Western scientific framework that was trying to explain the world in a certain way, and which was developing this very deep-time image for the first time. Yes. Um, 
Uh, also, the sort of twin energies of catastrophism and uh, gradualism, the idea that the world... I think we discussed this in a previous episode. Yeah, we totally did. The world changed rapidly versus the world changed slowly. Extinction and the fact that there aren't dinosaurs around was seen as an argument for catastrophism. And so that's where you get those images of a bunch of volcanoes going off as the dinosaurs go, Arr! <sighs> That's one of my better dinosaur noises. <laughs> um. Anyways, uh... There's um, some really cool fossils of whales being dug up at this time, including the one that uh, Ishmael mistakenly thinks is from Alabama. Yeah, so so this is, uh, he, he mentions a couple of specific whale fossils, um, but the I, I only bothered to look up one of them because this is the one that he goes into the most detail on, which is, um, uh, he claims it was found in the year 1842 on the plantation of Judge Cree? Crea? That's C-R-E-A-G-H. I bet that name is just pronounced Cree. You're probably yeah, right. Yeah, probably. In Alabama. Now, there was a judge by that name who was involved in the discovery of a whale fossil, uh, but the whale fossil was discovered in 1834 in Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> and not on that judge's plantation. On someone yep. else's land, and then the judge got like involved in the, you know, kind of, uh, in presenting it scientifically and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but there was a, a fossil, and the fossil was named Basilosaurus, which means oh, king lizard. Oh, Basilosaurus. Because the, the people who discovered it thought it was a reptile. And because of the way that um, scientific nomenclature of animal species works, it is still called Basilosaurus, even though we know in the modern day... That, that it, it was not a Basilosaurus. Yeah, that it was not a, like a... But that's what the people who found it called it. Yep. There's a spider that's named after Cthulhu. Actually, there's a bunch of spiders and, like, small insects named after a variety of nerdy subjects. Uh, because a lot of people who find spiders are nerds. Yes. Um, yeah, and, like, uh... And you can't change the name once it's been made. Yeah, like, they, they tried. Um... <laughs> yeah, uh, Richard Owen, who famously was one of the, uh, anti... Richard Owen was an anti-Darwinian. He um, was the major antagonist in a number of uh, debates about um, Darwinism with Huxley. Um, and he, uh, in fact, was famous for being good at putting fossils together. And I think he was the head of the uh, natural, uh, the Museum of Natural Sciences in London. Um, uh, big deal guy. Um, and he specifically was like, you made a weird snake out of this, but it's a whale. And he rearranged the bones, and uh, I believe, and according to uh, Ishmael, rechristened the monster Zuglodon, but that's not the official name of the bones. Yeah, yeah, so like, uh, what happened was, you know, these uh, these bones were discovered in Louisiana, they were, like, named, and, uh, like, you know, people tried to describe them and study them, and then eventually they were brought to Britain and presented to Owen, and Owen concluded, based on the teeth, that it would have been a mammal, and specifically a cetacean. Mm -hmm. um, and so he rearranged the ribs and spine and so on to make it not a giant snake. Yes, um, but, uh, yeah, and Owen proposed renaming it, but... Zuglodon. Yes, uh, but the, the modern name of it is still Basilosaurus, uh, because, Good for Basilosaurus. I mean, what Wikipedia says about this is, The animal was later found to be an early marine mammal, which prompted attempts at renaming the creature, which failed, as zoological nomenclature dictates, using the original name given. Look, 
So the no backsies. <sighs> yes, it is the no backsies rule. It is one hundred percent the no backsies rule because, as far as I understand it, the logic behind this is basically the name is fundamentally immaterial. What matters is that every time you refer to it, you know which one you're referring to. So the name is where you get to put like your colleague or your own name so that you're immortalized in the Linnaean tree. Uh, but the the name, name itself is, is just a pointer to, to the animal. It is not supposed, like, despite the fact that obviously the names of almost, like, the Latin names of almost all animals are meaningful because they're, like, composed of, like, Latin roots. And their descriptions. They're not actually supposed to be meaningful. Yeah, they don't have to be meaningful. It's like, which is very different from, you know, family and order and all those other names, which are meant to communicate where in the, you know, grand schema of the phylogenetic tree this thing is found. The proper name is just, like, naming it Jim. Or Doris. Yeah. You, you can, in fact, name a uh, skeleton just whatever you want. I believe there's a uh, kind of tick called a Gary Larsoni. Yeah, there's also... a the uh, cartoonist. There's also an, an extinct whale uh, named, like, Melville. Good! Uh, unsurprisingly, Yeah, right? no, that one's, a, that one's not a surprise at all. Mm. Uh, now I need to go look up the cool, uh, cool extinct whale. I really do. Uh, named after Melville. Anyways, um... Owen does also pronounce it, in substance, one of the most extraordinary creatures which the mutations of the globe have blotted out of existence, which is such a wild use of mutation. Because um, he, he means mutation to mean like the transformations of the physical world, the catastrophes that have caused extinctions. Um, uh, okay, it's really cool to me that the common name of the Melville whale is Leviathan. Yeah, it's, it's just named Leviathan. Yeah, well, specifically, so they wanted to name Holy it. Holy shit, those fucking teeth! Yeah, it's a, it is a, a an extinct sperm whale, um, and, and uh, this was a, so they wanted when this, uh, when this, you know, extinct whale was uh, discovered and named, um, in July 2010, they wanted to name it Leviathan Melville, but the the scientific name Leviathan was already taken. Oh, by mammoths. So they had to name it Leviathan uh, from the, the word in Hebrew rather than like Leviathan, the like English version of that word. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Melville would find this all quite like good. Like the fact that fundamentally it was difficult to name this whale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that rules. I'm go I know what I'm going to be doing after the podcast, which is looking up the Melville whale. Yes. Qual. Um. Anyways, uh, once again, the minute we run into 19th century science, all structure of this podcast goes out the window. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I do also note that he claims, with no backing up this point at all, that the, uh, you know, this being a supposedly on a plantation, the enslaved people who were uh, made to dig it up uh, believed it to be the skeleton of a fallen angel, which is again a reference to the extensive beliefs about nephilim giants and the various you know uh natures of the bones being discovered that is being replaced by the mo the understanding of fossils um i just think it's funny that the uh the nephilim truth shows up in the book yeah yeah no you're right <sighs> god um, i'm here for so much gnosticism and so little nephilim <sighs> in any case uh god um the phrase annihilated antichronical leviathans shows up in this next paragraph. Yeah, the next paragraph is just about Ishmael, like, saying, like, well, when I consider whale fossils, I am, like, overwhelmed by time. 
I am I am by a flood born back to that wondrous period, ere time itself can be said to have begun, for time began with man. Yeah. So he's he's antichronical is a very correct word here, because he does mean the measurement of time by man. Because time began with man. Yeah, and he's also he's specifically evoking the idea of a, a period in the past when, um, basically, like, uh, you know, he's suggesting, like, do an ice wanna, age. Do we just want to read it? Yeah, sure. I, I obtain, no, here Saturn's gray chaos rolls over me, and I obtain dim, shuddering glimpses into those polar eternities, when wedged bastions of ice pressed hard upon what are now the tropics, and in all the twenty-five thousand miles of this world's circumference, not an inhabitable hand's breadth of land was visible. Then the whole world was the whales, and king of creation, he left his wake along the present lines of the Andes and the Himalayas, or Himalayas. Who can show a pedigree like Leviathan? Ahab's harpoon had shed older blood than the pharaohs. Methuselah seems a schoolboy. I look around to shake hands with Shem. I am horror-struck at this anti-mosaic, unsourced existence of the unspeakable terrors of the whale, which, having been before all time, must needs exist after all humane ages are over. So, that's the section I felt we really needed to get to to talk about his sense of time. Okay. Because he's saying that the whale existed before creation, except he's specifically making creation human history. Right. So I understand why you wanted to get to this thematically. I do not feel that this was relevant to my perhaps very quotidian desire to make a timeline. Well, no, I think it does. What he's saying is his model of the world is one in which there was a timeline, possibly with an arc and a deluge, but all of that occurs after humans come onto the scene, possibly by special creation, possibly by, you know, uh, evolution of some kind. I think we've talked about whether or not he would have run into Darwinianism at this point. But the important thing is, there's this sense that there was what he calls an unsourced creation. There was a world before Genesis, and it is the world of dinosaurs and ages of the earth and strange churning materiality, which to him is this sort of terrifying, unknowable epoch. Yes. Time no. begins with Genesis, but time begins with man. Yes, I agree. I just, uh, I felt that that was actually in, like, not in as strong of a thematic statement, but I felt like that was already stated. It's implied, it's it's present, but I think that having this explicit image of the world before creation calling the whale unsourced makes it clear. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Oh. <sighs> Then, are, are you happy at this point to actually lay out the timeline, or do you want to get to the end of this I mean, chapter and the end of the next one? I, I'm happy to try and lay out the timeline. From here, it's talking about ancient temples that have whales in them. Yeah, so so as far as I can tell, the way that Ishmael is, is constructing this, it's like, okay, in the earliest possible past, there was, as you just talked about, like, there were, like, the most ancient leviathans, and, like dinosaurs or other uh creatures that basically have no living descendants yes and also and also possibly creatures that now have living descendants that were among those yes such as the first whales yes but currently uh but there are also creatures whose lines have become entirely extinct what he describes as monsters because we've been saying dinosaurs but i don't think he ever uses that term no he just talks about monsters yeah he totally doesn't use the word dinosaurs i'm using those as like a a conceptual yeah um but but no you're right he's not 
yeah, my, my point is that I, I think to the modern mind, dinosaurs are easy to imagine as creatures that that totally don't exist anymore, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that whales clearly aren't. There, there are still whales. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so there's that. Then Genesis happens, and God creates other animals and man. Or just maybe. creates man. Or, like, yes. I think you could probably, and I, I think this is a 19th century position that some people took, is that Genesis is describing the beginning of humans who are specially created. Other things come into existence and you know, it's unclear if uh, Ishmael is a transmutationist. I've mentioned Darwinism, but that's that's Darwinism is merely the kind of transmutationism that ended up being more or less true. Mm-hmm. Whereas transmutationism was the general position that the shapes of species have changed, that the ancestors of species were not like them, not merely in being larger or smaller, but in genuinely different forms. Well, I, I think that he is suggesting that there is some kind of uh, change in, in mm-hmm. animals over time because of what he talks about with the idea of the connecting or at any rate intercepted mm, links yeah. between the antichronical creatures and those whose remote posterity are said to have entered yeah, the Yeah, no, I think you're right. He's He believes that there has been a... At this point, I think most people who are interested in this kind of science believe and have access, obviously, to the, these you know discussions uh, and are overeducated, like Ishmael, mm-hmm. um, have opinions on, you know, have this idea of the... Of, change in species i think that's been pretty solidly established even even if you don't believe in transmutationism you believe in a succession of species uh louis agassiz who may have come up before because uh he's an interesting figure also just a wildly huge racist and invented the concept of an ice age which obviously ishmael is thinking about here as well um agassiz put forward the idea of many special creations constantly basically new species come into being with each sort of age of the earth specially created um and by the by the end of his career was sort of getting to the point where he was claiming that every variation or subspecies was itself specially like comes into being like almost like independently of of the previously existing species he sort of ended up in this position of yes obviously the fossils change but that's because they keep popping into existence possibly because of god over and over and over through all of these periods so you can have an idea of not necessarily a single genesis, but a, a, a polygenesis. Many moments of divine or otherwise not directly biological creation, or at least special creation occurring throughout history or prehistory, so that you get the sweep of different species coming in and out of existence that shows up in fossils. I don't see any reason to believe that Ishmael specifically embraces that very particular understanding of this. But I'm just saying that there are ways to be a believer in a change in species and a complicated fossil record without being a transmutationist that exists in the 19th century. Yes. Okay, I'm not quite done with the timeline because the next relevant event is the flood. Yes, the flood definitely happened. Yes, and the flood probably wiped out the dinosaurs it certainly wiped out a bunch of creatures whose lines did not pass through but i think ishmael is willing to believe in non-flood extinctions because one of the okay extinctions exist but they don't happen now possibilities is to say well extinctions happen when god specifically releases the deluge and that's where all the dinosaurs went but 
you know, the flood itself is not, uh, is, is the only place where you lose species. Otherwise, they continue indefinitely. And Ishmael does not seem to take this position. He seems to take the position that you can cause an extinction separate from the flood. So it's unclear if he thinks that the, you know, the ancient antichronical monsters died out before the time of Adam or, you know, between, you know, or in the antediluvian era or in the flood. Although I do think that when he uses the term antediluvian, it usefully points to the idea that he thinks there was a lot of extinction in the flood. Yes. <sighs> okay, I think I'm done. And that's what leads to the world as we know it. Yes, I think also, I'm done with that. I antediluvian just... was an important term for uh, catastrophists because they were like, look, there were massive catastrophes. The Bible describes one. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Anyways, yes. Okay, cool. So yeah, that's that. Um... And anyway, to conclude this chapter, uh, he wants to talk about, like, basically, um, record, ancient, uh, records of whales. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, he talks about the, uh, uh, he talks about a, a, a specific, like, known, um, you know, I guess basically archaeological find, mm -hmm. the Dendera Temple Complex, and specifically... Uh, something which is now called the Dendera Zodiac, um, which is, oh. you know, a, a basically a zodiac, right? Like the yeah. um, the ceiling of a building that has like constellations on it, um, and uh, yeah, this is just you know uh, you mentioned the concept of like nineteenth uh, century Egyptology. Yep, yep. Um, this is this is absolutely part of that. Yep, um, and yep. you know his his the relevant point to him for this is like ah there's whales in in that uh, planisphere. Yep, yep. I like that he you know um, gliding among them, old leviathan swam as of yore. Was there swimming in that planisphere centuries before Solomon was cradled? Yep. Yep, yep. Just some very old depictions of whales. Yeah. And then he also mentions a. Uh, another you know antique structure which involves whale yeah and this is um in this case he is he is quoting from a uh renaissance author um whom he calls john leo uh who's also called uh Johannes leo africanus who is a seems like just a fascinating historical figure i know nothing about this guy yeah so he was a um he was uh Born in like um, uh, Andalusia, yeah, or Al Andalus, yeah, the the you know what what might also be called in other contexts like quote Muslim Spain, right? Um, and he was captured by Christian pirates and imprisoned and brought to the Pope, and he converted. And then he became like a like an explorer who recorded Africa for the Pope. Okay, right. That's a lot. As I said, seems like a fascinating historical figure. Yeah, that's yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um. So and, he has an account of uh, yeah a he, location. He wrote a book basically called like Description of Africa. Um, and and in that book. He records a a temple built out of whale bones, um, uh, where supposedly uh, there was a belief that um, no whales could pass that temple without dying. 
uh, which uh, this, you know, Johannes Leo says is because there are rocks on either side of the temple that, like, whales crash into, and that's why they die. Um, But uh, it's it's interesting. It seems like... uh, John Leo has, like, an ambiguous relationship to whether he thinks this temple is, like, credible. Because on the one hand, Mm -hmm. he has this thing where he's like, oh, yeah, they say whales always die when they swim past it. But really, it's just because of this rocks. But on the other hand, he also says that uh, there is a claim that a a prophet who prophesied Muhammad came from that temple. And that supposedly Jonah was, like, uh, cast forth by the whale at that temple. And he seems a little more, like open to those yeah he, he's not immediately denying those possibilities although i also am a little unclear on so like i found an english translation of description of africa mm-hmm. uh but it was like a 1600 english translation so it was a little hard for me to like understand um and uh it seems like um from that, I actually had a little bit of a hard time telling whether he was claiming that the, you know, the people of this whale temple claim that there was a prophet there who spoke of Muhammad in the future, or whether they said that Muhammad spoke of this whale temple. It, like I said, it was a 1600 English translation. It yeah, was hard yeah, to yeah. read. I, look, I don't think we're going to figure that out. Yeah, no. And, and uh, definitely this text here is not the same as that translation. And I I assume that, as with many cases where things have been quoted in this book, this is, like, Melville freely adapting from a book that he had. It's possible. Um, He definitely has, um, he abbreviates uh, them as, like, apostrophe M, like, upon them. And I don't think that any adaptation of uh, Leo Africanus would do that. Well, I think the 1600 one might. I guess, but you said it was a different text. Well, yeah, but I, I think that possibly what's going on here is that Melville is abbreviating that 1600 translation. That's possible. Yep. Anyway, um, anyway uh, he concludes by just saying, all right, I, I leave you in, the, in this temple of the whale, and if you be an Nantucketer and a whaleman, you will silently worship there. I think Starbuck would have some harsh words about that sentence. I mean, maybe, yeah. Have you met Starbuck? Yeah, but on the other hand, there's a whale church, like, in New Bedford. Yeah, but it doesn't have, like, whale bones and, like, arranged within it. It's not the whale which is revered there. I suppose. That's sort of aggressively (laughs) anti-whale. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. (sighs) And... Speaking of things that are aggressively anti-whale. Ah, yes. The next chapter. The last one. Chapter 105. Does the whale's magnitude diminish? Will he perish? So, we've discussed extinction a bunch, and we've discussed, like, the the long, uh... I was about to say the long tail of whale history, but I... that That's a really <laughs> dumb pun. The long, like, uh you know, history of whales and their life on Earth, which Ishmael has stated will last forever, from the beginning to the end, time beyond time, whales are immortal. Not individually, but, you know. Yeah, so, so... God, love the title of this chapter. These are the questions. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and the opening is also really great. Inasmuch, then, as this leviathan comes floundering down upon us from the headwaters of the Eternities, it may be fitly inquired whether, in the long course of his generations, he has not degenerated from the original bulk of his sires. Yeah, so, so, what he is literally trying to talk about here is, are modern whales smaller than ancient whales? Um, like, have, have whale species decreased in size over yes. time? Were whales bigger in the past, or are they bigger now? Uh, but it is, uh, Ishmael says that fossil whales are, in fact, if anything, smaller than modern ones. Yep, um, yep. And, uh, you know, for example, as he says, of all the pre-Adamite whales yet exhumed, by far the largest is the Alabama, note, it was in Louisiana, one <laughs> mentioned in the last chapter, and that was less than 70 feet in length in the skeleton. Whereas we've already seen that the tape measure gives 72 feet for the skeleton of a large-sized modern whale. Um... He also claims that whalemen have captured uh, sperm whales up to 100 feet, which, as we know, is not really a thing, but okay. But, um, you know, uh, and then he's like, well, okay, perhaps, uh... This is another place where we get his timeline, because he says, yeah. you know, uh, while... Yes, in previous geological periods, whales were smaller. Maybe in the historical period, that is to say, since Adam's time... They were larger for a while and then smaller. Yeah, so like, is he? So he's almost suggesting, I guess, that like there was a an increase and then a decrease in whale size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that there was a period of time of you know greater whales and presumably greater men. The golden era of human history when all things were larger, and now the world dwindles, having had its prime. And this is where, uh, as I mentioned before, there are some like truly absurd claims of of whale size, uh, because. Uh, for Pliny tells us of whales that embraced acres of living bulk, which is just yep. acres of whales. And Aldrovandus of others, which measured 800 feet in length, rope walks and Thames tunnels of whales. And, uh, and you God, know... I'm just imagining an 800 foot whale. It's, it's, it's literally a lot. And he is even able to cite, like, the, the quite recent uh, naturalist Lassiped, who says, who sets down the right whale at 100 meters... 328 feet, and this work was published so late as A.D. 1825. But will any whaleman believe these stories? He immediately asks, and I think pretty solidly answers, no. Yeah, um, and, and his, his evidence for this, which I actually think is fairly solid, which is that, you know, uh, mummies and, like, the ancient, like, images of animals on Egyptian temples uh, indicate that, you know, even, like, the oldest, you know, possibly recorded human bodies were about the same size as modern ones. That's not quite what he means, actually. He says they do not measure so much in their coffins as a modern Kentuckian in his socks. He's saying that they're smaller. That well, I, the... think, I think Kentuckians are tall. I mean, yeah, but that's sort of the argument. We are now producing tall people. Mm, yeah. Like, and similarly, he talks about... You know, um, the cattle and other animals sculptured on the oldest Egyptian and Nineveh tablets by the relative proportions in which they are drawn just as plainly prove that the hybrid stall-fed prize cattle of Smithfield not only equal but far exceed in magnitude the fattest of Pharaoh's fat kind. So he's suggesting that, generally speaking, animals have gotten bigger using humans who we know have actually, broadly speaking, gotten taller because of basically... Uh, modern developed agriculture and uh, high-protein diets and all that. Those those things that are, to some extent, the hallmark of our modern productive systems. Um, 
and also animals that we intentionally breed to be really big so as to provide the meat for those productive systems. Yeah. So he's arguing that animals have generally gotten bigger over the course of history, humans included, and he says... Basically, it wouldn't be fair if the whales were the only thing getting smaller. That just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I do want to note that, on this point, Ishmael's basically correct. Uh, so, like, the... Well, you know, he's... It's certainly the case that... Well, go on, sorry. So, I just mean, specifically speaking of whales, um, this, uh, you know, uh, Livyatan Melville, for example, um, is similar in size to the modern sperm whale, um, which, you know, makes it one of the largest predators ever to ex have existed. So, like, the modern sperm whale is about as large as ancient fossil sperm whales. Yep, and, and blue whales are even bigger. Yes, and, and blue whales are, in fact, like, the largest animal to ever have existed. So it is, in fact, the case that, like... As far as we know. <laughs> Nephilim truth. Okay, okay. Sorry. My I point just, is I just, just that... My point is just that, and perhaps this is in some sense by, like, pure coincidence, right? But he is right. Uh, the whale has not degenerated in size over yeah, no, time. The, the blue whale is absolutely doing just fine in terms of being the biggest animal. In no way, shape, or form has a blue whale ever had a competitor in that particular category. So, does the whale's magnitude diminish? No! <laughs> Will he perish? Mm, well, um, that's a different question. <laughs> Yeah. So he's obviously not going to shrink out of existence. Yeah, but, um, so this is the question of, will whales ever go extinct? Um, and, uh... In particular, will humans drive whales extinct? Yes, and, and this is apparently something that Nantucketers are kind of concerned about, because there appear to be several indications that you could perceive from whaling that maybe whales are getting less numerous over time. Uh, yeah, they've had to go further and more aggressively through the oceans to find uh, whale hunting grounds. They no longer see whales directly off Nantucket at all, um, and you know their entire economy is based on this. Yes, and there is also the like very sort of available example of bison, which you know were incredibly numerous at one time and were nearly wiped out by human hunting. So the concept of human hunting driving a species to extinction is, like, available, and he brings it up and in his chapter. And it's very American. Yes, and so there is not a, there, there is a real sense that that is totally possible, and that, like, whaling could have that effect. Um, but Ishmael is basically at pains to insist that even though that is, like, that, that, that extinction can happen. Can, extinction through human hunting can happen and has basically happened to bison although... yeah i mean he doesn't even mention the passenger pigeon which well wasn't that later than this i thought the passenger pigeon was pretty early i'm pretty sure it was like the early 20th century well we're gonna google passenger pigeon and they get kind of sad yeah the last passenger oh, 1914 pigeon... okay. yeah yeah so that that um anyway though um that's depressing anyways moving on but uh but he insists uh the, that for one thing that like uh bison hunting is not comparable to whale hunting because like the the you know the, ratio yeah basically that like the the number of animals that a given bison hunt would would kill in their in a given span of time is so much greater 
than the number of whales that whaling manages to kill in the same period of time. With with the same number of men, to be clear. Yes. Yeah, his, his numbers here are kind of distressing. Cause it's like, uh, um, you know, uh, the same number of uh, whale hunting men, you know, who 40 men in one ship hunting the sperm whale for 48 months think they have done extremely well, and thank God, if at last they carry home the oil of 40 fish. Whereas in the days of the old Canadian and Indian hunters and trappers of the West, when the far West, in whose sunset suns still rise, was a wilderness and a virgin, the same number of moccasined men, for the same number of months, mounted on horse instead of sailing in ships, would have slain not 40, but 40,000 and more buffaloes. The fact that, if need were, could be statistically stated. I'm just like, that's horrifying. I mean, yeah. I, I know that this period in history was horrifying and produced literally mountains of skulls, but... Jeez. Yeah. Um. So that's the argument that we're not going to be able to immediately just wipe whales out, even though, as he says, they are hunted remorselessly across the globe with keen harpoons. Yes. Uh, and he also uh, takes to the... Apparently the... You know, it was observed that you could, you would run into sperm whales much more frequently in the past in, like, relatively small pods. And so whaling voyages were shorter and more profitable. Um, but uh, his explanation for that is not that there are, like, fewer whales, but rather just that they are swimming together in larger groups. Uh, for safety from hunters, like yes. the Armada we saw. Um, so, uh, and, and similarly that, like, yes... Whales are no longer found in places where they once were found, but he sees that as purely the result of whales, like, moving to different, safer locations. Not, like, not whales being decreased in numbers overall, but just whale behavior changing. Yeah, whales reacting intelligently to the fact that they are being hunted by a remorseless foe, which also just distressing to be like, yeah, they're smart enough to do that. We hunt them for food and oil. Yes. Uh, and then he also claims that, um, at least in this case, I think he's actually talking specifically about right whales, whalebone whales, mm -hmm. uh, that they will always be able to retreat to the Arctic, uh, where humans can, can never possibly hunt them. Also, the Antarctic, I think, is implied. Oh, yeah, sorry, to the poles, I should yes, have said. Yes, because at the time, I don't think it was necessarily certainly known that Antarctica is one big continent. So mm -hmm. there could have been the idea that you could get, you know, because the North Pole doesn't have a continent it's just there's a lot of ice there so you could theoretically have whales just go up under the ice find a place and live there um you know and have like air pop spots where they pop up whereas you really can't do that in antarctica and i don't know whether ishmael would have been aware that antarctica is a pretty solid continent yeah uh, but you know there's ice shelves there but so that's the that's his theory of why the right whale can never go extinct is that it will always be able to retreat into ice locked regions where human hunters cannot follow. Yes, um, and you know he does admit that like a huge number of right whales have been killed, uh, but even so, he's he claims that that really doesn't mean anything by comparison uh, to elephants. Um, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So his argument is that elephants have been historically hunted for a long time uh, especially like by monarchs yes uh, in the places where elephants live um, and that they have been hunted you know prodigiously for thousands of years and yet there are still large numbers of elephants therefore surely like this is even more true of whales who have an even larger like range because they can live in you know the entirety of the ocean um 
It's an argument that is based on numbers I don't think are believable and also gets really depressing when you think about the stated elephants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, this whole discussion is very fucking depressing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it really feels like he's got all the evidence that it would be possible for human hunting to ex- to drive whales to extinction. And he just refuses to admit of the possibility. Well, yeah. He'd lose his livelihood. I mean, yes. And also, he'd lose his figure of the whale as an untouchable and absolute uh, entity. I mean, yes. Like, I, I'm not saying I don't understand yeah, what yeah. the motivations are here. It's just... Um, yeah, no, it's grim. It's very grim. He, he also argues that uh, because whales have such long lifespans, uh, their population is more resilient because there's just more of them. Which, again, this is... It doesn't seem, like, modern science seems to think that sperm whales live about 70 years, so... And also, that wouldn't really change anything. That would, if anything, say it's worse because more of that population might be older and less capable of reproducing. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think this is a very cogent point that he makes. Um, But he wraps it up in basically saying, yeah, uh, the species of whales will live forever, even if there is another uh, biblical flood... uh, the whales will survive the same way they did the first time. Yes. Um, this cha- this paragraph's actually very good, even if it's a conclusion that we're just like, no, Ishmael, no. Yeah. Wherefore, for all these things, we account the whale immortal in his species, however perishable in his individuality. He swam the seas before the continents broke water. He once swam over the sites of the Tuileries and Windsor Castle and the Kremlin. In Noah's flood, he despised Noah's ark. And if ever the world is to be again flooded, like the Netherlands, to kill off its rats, then the eternal whale will still survive, and rearing upon the topmost crest of the equatorial flood, spout his frothed defiance to the skies. So there's a sense in which the whale is immune to God's judgment. Yeah. Like, that's what this is communicating. God cannot kill the whale. Though he may draw Leviathan out with his fishhook, the flood cannot destroy them. Yeah. So, like, the species of whale, unsourced, prior prior creation, is outside of some divine uh, command. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It sucks that the rest of the chapter has to be just an endlessly depressing statement that human exploitation of the natural environment? Eh, it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Ripped to bison, but whales are built different. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was the 1850s. It looked like peak whale would never come. Peak whale oil. Uh, But, yeah, that's... Will the whale diminish? No. Will he perish? Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to, like, maybe end this on a slightly less depressing point. I, I think that, uh, like, in terms of global population, uh, whales are actually, sperm whales anyway, are, are doing okay. My impression is that the general conservation efforts made towards whales have been pretty solid and have uh, moved them from endangered to, at least according to Google right now, vulnerable. Yeah, so it's like... they're. It's not like, I don't mean to suggest that uh, there is zero concern about whale conservation in the modern period, uh, especially, you know. uh, Global warming. Yeah, yeah. But 
Um, Hopefully, Ishmael, though incorrect on the cause, is correct on the effect, and the whale will be immortal in his species. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, basically what I'm trying to say is that the, um, I, I think that the, you know, significant uh, decrease in global sperm whale population caused by sperm whaling uh, has not, uh, I, I think that uh, the end of commercial whaling has had a real effect. Yes. I guess is what yeah, I'm trying yeah, yeah. to say. No, there are absolutely... <laughs> positive developments in whale conservation especially sperm whale conservation and uh the species does continue and doesn't look likely to stop anytime soon good for whales yeah yeah however on the whole uh depressing as hell chapter yes yeah i i kind of don't want to do the normal outro feels (laughs) really morbid uh okay i mean we can do it if you want i mean i I feel like we can't, uh, we can't turn back now. We can, here's the thing, Ben, there's another option in that sentence. (laughs) Wait, so you're just saying that it's okay, we could drown. Yes. Yes, Uh, I am. That's somehow more grim. (laughs) Humans causing environmental devastation? Consider global flooding. (laughs) Anyways, what tune do we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat?